The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open it. We're going to be looking at three different sets of texts today. The first is Exodus chapter 34. We're looking at John 3.16 and then Romans 8, 9 to 17. I'll tell you when we get to that, um, I'll remind you of those verses. You can also open up the YouVersion app and follow along in there. Well, if you're like me and you were watching the, the welcome video that we've had up for the past two weeks, you've probably noticed that you've only seen three of the four Westway pastors on that video. And maybe you're wondering where Joe was. Well, when we filmed that that day... Um, there were, we had lots of lights in the room, and the lights were reflecting off of Joe's glasses. And we didn't know it until we had put all of this stuff away and started to make editing. And Joe's eyes were completely white on the video. So we are going to reshoot that, and Joe will be on there at some point in the future. We still have four pastors. One of the, pa- one of the phrases that we use here at Westway is growing in our wisdom and knowledge in a way that leads to transformation. That's our goal for you. We want you to grow in your wisdom and knowledge, your wisdom and knowledge of the Bible, your wisdom and knowledge about God. We want you to grow in those things, not as an end to themselves, but we want you to grow in those things that you'll be transformed by what God has to say to you. Because there is a way to learn and grow in a way that doesn't lead to transformation where we can just gain head knowledge and have it really not affect the way that we live our lives. And wisdom and knowledge, those things can be helpful and they can be insightful, but what we're after is transformation. That's what Jesus wants from us. That's what God wants from us, is actually to be different people, to be renewed people. That's that's what we're after here. One of the things that we've been doing over the past several years in our, in our elders meetings is we've been talking about different topics. A couple years ago, we spent an entire year talking about the role of elders within the church. We, we had a, a packet created, and on, on Monday mornings, we would go through, we would read it during the week, and then on Monday mornings, we would come back and we would talk about eldership And then last year, if you remember, uh, we said we were talking about communion as a church and and why we take communion and what communion is all about. And the reason that we did that is we've, as you've noticed over the past couple years, as we came out of COVID and now we live stream and we do all sorts of things, we do communion a little bit differently than what we were doing before. We passed trays, we did all of those kinds of things. And as we were discussing coming out of summer last year, What was this going to look like in the future for us? I think the very first Monday before before we met, I said, you know, one of the things I realized, like I had never actually studied communion. I knew because I read the Bible, I know what it says about it, but I've never actually taken time, intentional time, to look up every single verse where it talks about communion and then have like an honest conversation and a real conversation about what communion was why we celebrated it, how we did it, and all of those things. And we went around the room, and I don't think that there was another elder or pastor who had ever done that either. And again, like maybe that concerns you, maybe that doesn't concern you. My question for you, if that worries you, is how many times have you studied communion? How many times have you spent time in Scripture and really, really dug in? And we just hadn't done that before. 
So we spent six weeks looking at texts, talking about texts, and the, the end of that conversation uh, is, is pretty simple. Like, we're still doing communion, if you've noticed that. I don't really know that, I don't know that anything practically changed in the way that we do communion, but what did change was it forced us to look at the ways that one another, our elders and our pastors, read and study the Bible. We all have our own preferences. We've talked about essentials, essentials and convictions and preferences. We all have preferences about the way that we do communion. And what that conversation allowed us to do was to be able to learn and understand how people look at things differently. And see, that's, that's transformation. And I think almost every person in the room at one point over the six weeks said something to the effect of, you know, I never thought about communion like that before. When I never looked at that verse in the same way like that before. And that's, that's really a benefit of having a bunch of different people in a room together, talking through Scripture, reading Scripture, praying through Scripture, because you, you see things that you don't normally get to see. So again, nothing really changed about what it was, but we talked about it. We learned. And if you were to ask us why we do communion, I think we're better prepared to have that conversation at this point. And one of the things that we've been talking about as a, as a church that has experienced growth over the past several years is we want to talk about the things that we believe in. We want to communicate what we believe. We want to communicate why those things matter. So as we were, as we were getting ready for the Easter season and looking at what our preaching calendar is kind of the idea was we should talk about what we believe as a church coming out of Easter. Because our hope and our desire is, is that we would have new people come in the weeks leading up to Easter. They would be here on Easter Sunday. And maybe they're a little curious about what we believe. So we had that conversation. And this little series that we're just calling What We Believe um, is you're going to find it happening maybe once or twice a year. We're just going to have different topics that we talk about. At some point, we're going to hit communion. The next three weeks, we're going to talk about, today we're talking about what we believe about God. Next week, we're talking about what we believe about leadership. And the week after, we're going to talk about what we believe about salvation. And then in the month of May, we're going to take time. And you've heard us, if you are a Westway person, you've heard us use the phrase intergenerational a bunch of times. We are an intergenerational church. And because that means lots of different things to lots of different people, we want to devote an entire month to that. And I really want to encourage you to come and participate in that. It is not a family ministry series. This is one of the things when we, when we use words that people think they mean one thing and they really don't. Some people are going to hear intergenerational and they're going to think, well, I don't have kids. I don't have grandkids. I'm not even married. I don't need, like, that's not for me. And what we want to tell you is that's, you couldn't be more wrong. One of the things that we want to do is we want to be an intergenerational church. See, like, hap, like what happened in that elders and pastors meeting over those, over those six weeks talking about communion. Like we're learning from people who are older than us. We're learning from people who are younger than us. I'm going to out Dave Robinson. Dave Robinson was one of the people who said, you know, in that text, that, that was something I've never thought about before. Dave is not the oldest guy in the room. But there are lots of people who are younger than him in the room. And what that means is Dave... As like Dave Robinson, right? 
Dave Robinson goes to Papua New Guinea along with Dave Parrish, concocts a language out of midair and translates the Bible into it. Dave Robinson can sit in a room and learn from people who are younger than him. So that's what it means for us to be an intergenerational church. And we're going to use time in May to talk about what it means for us to be an intergenerational church. So just so you know, if you're seeing that topic today, like what we believe about God, and you're thinking to yourself, that's a pretty lofty topic to cover in 45 minutes. You're right, it is a pretty lofty topic. This will not be exhaustive in any way, shape, or form. And one of the things that we do talk about here often as well is there, there are probably going to be some, some things about God that, that you wish we would have talked about in this. There will probably be some things about God that you wish we didn't talk about. And that's what happens when you have the entire creator of the universe and you're trying to condense it into 45 minutes. And the reality of it is we could condense it into 45 minutes for 10 years and not cover the reality of who God is. So what we've been doing over the past several weeks now, actually over the past eight weeks, is we've been reading, studying, discussing, and praying about, about God. Like, What do we believe about God? And one of the things that Christians believe is we believe that God is a trinity made up of three parts. There's a graphic in your YouVersion app. There's also a graphic uh, here on the screen. And this is, this is kind of a helpful graphic for us in thinking about who, what the Trinity looks like. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the Son. The Father is also not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's also not the, not the Father. But all, th- all three of those people, they make up God. So again, there, there are probably things that fall short on this, and that's what happens when you try and condense God into a picture, right? It, God can't be contained, but this is a helpful image for us to see. And here's, here's the big picture for our, for our conversation today. God is our holy, just, and righteous Righteous and loving Father, demonstrating those characteristics through his Son, Jesus, and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Like, if we were to think about God, that, that's, how, that's how we are describing God. And this is what we believe about God, uh, and this will also be on the screen over a course of a couple different slides. We believe that there is a God, and he is our Father. He is the creator of all things, and he is eternal and self-evident. God is all-knowing. The word that we use for that is omniscient. He's all-powerful. The word that we use for that is omnipotent. And he's always present. The word that we use for that is omnipresent. God is personally concerned and engaged in our lives and desires to be in relationship with us. He is both loving and just. God shows us how to be right with him, placing our faith in Jesus Christ. So that's our really big picture. If you, if you look on version, and here in a few weeks, you'll look on our website. We have a whole list of verses because we want, we want you to know like where this came from. When I say that we have been sitting in, in an elders meeting for the last eight, eight weeks and talking about this and discussing this, 
What we're not doing is, well, I think God is this, and I think God is this, and I think God is this, and we just kind of created this statement out of thin air. What we're doing, because we want to be a church that is informed by Scripture, we're spending time in Scripture. So we're taking a statement like this from what the Bible says, and we would encourage you to look up those verses to spend time with Scripture and see how Scripture defines God. And today I just want to talk about two different aspects of God as the Father. And those are found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. If you have a Bible, grab one of the Bibles in front of you. This is on page 61 of the Bible in front of you. So I read, I read these verses, and, and the question that I asked myself as I was prepping for the message time today is, is what does this text tell me about God? That's a really helpful question. And, and one of the things that we're also striving to do is teach you how to do this. That's where we're, we're not being overly complicated. Sometimes we think... Like, I don't know how to read and study the Bible because, because maybe I haven't been a Christian for very long. Maybe I'm not a Christian and I don't know how to read and understand the Bible. I don't know how to read and understand the Bible because I haven't been to Bible college. I don't have an advanced degree. And what we are trying to do here is, is say, yes, you can. You actually can read the Bible. You are equipped. And this was my question. What does this text tell me about God? This is Exodus 34. The people have left the promised land. They're on their way, or excuse me, the people have left Egypt, they're on their way to the promised land. Moses is meeting God. Verse 6, Exodus 34, the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. So what does this, what does this text tell me about God? What's interesting here is this is God speaking, so, so God is self-identifying God is revealing who he is, and it's simple. God loves you and is holy, righteous, and just. This is how God, in the opportunity that he has with Moses, who all of the people are about to enter into the promised land, they've come out of hundreds and hundreds of years of slavery, they're going to be brand new people, they're going to live their lives differently, and the identity that God gives himself is, I love you, and I'm holy, and I'm righteous, and I'm just. And what I love about this text so much is what God chooses to say first. Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. See, what people say first matters. And what God wants Moses to take away from this encounter, what God wants Moses to share with the people, is that God is good. 
God is kind. God is compassionate. He loves his people. He loves us. But there's also a second part. This is 7b. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents of their, upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. See, one of the things that, that we have to see and we have to understand is that whether we are loved by God, whether we are experiencing that love from God or we are experiencing the righteousness, holiness, and justice of God, what we have to understand is there are consequences to receiving those things from God. And those consequences are going to, are going to bleed down into the next generation. They're going to be felt by the next generation. When we respond to God, love to a thousand generations. Imagine that. God loves to a thousand generations. And when we are guilty, then there's also a consequence for that, that are felt by following generations. This past weekend, Ann and I had the opportunity to go to the leadership conference for the Northern Plains Evangelistic Association. That's a ministry that we support. They're a church planning organization. Alice and Dave Parrish were also there. A number of people from lots of different area churches were there. And we got to spend eight hours in the car with John and Debbie Thomas. And one of the things that we found out as we were engaging in those conversations, like John came, John's a product of a divorced family. I didn't know that before. I'm a product of a divorced family. And what was so interesting about this, and for me it was when I was going into my senior year of high school. John, I think you said it was your freshman year of college? Beginning of college? So we're talking about events 40 years ago. And we, we talked in that conversation about the way that, that, that that sin has had consequences. 40 years later, the impact and effects of that sin impacts, it impacts my relationship with my wife today. It impacts my relationship with my kids. It impacts my relationship with my grandchildren. And what I want you to see in this is that there are consequences to responding to God. God loves to a thousand generations. And there's righteousness and there's justice to three or four. And one of the things that we are going to see if we were to read throughout the entire Bible is we would see that God consistently has this posture of pursuing people. Of demonstrating the reality of who he is. I'm kind, I'm loving, I'm compassionate, and I'm holy, and I'm righteous, and I'm just. And God is constantly going to pursue his people using those two things as his standard. We see it in the law. If we were to flip back to Exodus chapter 20, what we're going to see is a God who loves us so much that he is going to give us guardrails. Does anybody else need guardrails in their life? God loves you so much that he's going to give you guardrails. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? We normally don't think of guardrails that way, right? 
Usually when we, when we read the law, we think it's trying to keep us down. You know, we see the speed limit sign and we know better than the moron who made that sign how fast we should all drive. Right? We have, we have guardrails. See, God loves you so much that he gave you guardrails. Because on our own, if we were to, again, read through the Bible, we would see, and this is what we're going to talk about in two weeks when we talk about salvation, like we don't know what's best for us. And we have a loving God who's given us guardrails. He reveals his holiness and his righteousness and his justice through those guardrails. But ultimately, God reveals his love for his people through the person of Jesus. That's the second person of the Trinity, the graphic that I showed you earlier. And in fact, God demonstrated this love once and for all through the person of Jesus. And I want you to think about that statement once and for all for a second. Once and for all. You may not think about it this way, but God doesn't owe you anything. God has revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ once and for all. And sometimes we get in this space where we think, well, if God would just, if God would just, yeah, but I get Jesus, but if God would just, once and for all, the person of Jesus. Let's look um, back up here on the screen. This is, this, is our, this is our statement about Jesus. And again, th- there may be some things that you feel like we left out. This is about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the exact representation of God's nature and being. He was present at creation and was born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is the promised Messiah that all Scripture points to and as such is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He voluntarily presented his life as a sacrifice and bore the penalty of our sin. He died, was buried, and three days later was physically resurrected. Before ascending to heaven and being seated at God's right hand, he gave Christians the mission of making disciples. Jesus will return one day to judge all mankind. What I would encourage you to do later today, in a few weeks on our website, we have a whole list of scripture verses. So you can see, again, like where this comes from. This is who Jesus is. And I, and I want to read to you John 3.16. You are likely familiar with this text, whether you are a Christian or not, because you saw it in the end zone of a football game. That's on page 662. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So the question that I asked myself this week was, what what does John 3.16 tell me about Jesus? Again, this is is something that we want to equip you. This is something that all of us can do. What does John 3.16 tell us about Jesus? And here's the statement. Jesus is the holiness, righteousness, justice, and love of God the Father personified. So when we think of all of the things that the Father is, holy, righteous, just, love, all of those things 
That's who Jesus was in the flesh. 100% God, 100% flesh, 100% humanity. I don't know how that math works out. 100% God, 100% flesh. God, God in the flesh is Jesus. And, and here's what John 3.16 is telling us. Here's what Jesus in John 3.16 is telling us. God is so holy, righteous, and just, and he loves you that he provides a way for everyone to be with him. Isn't that a good God? Like, in his holiness, righteousness, and justice, he does not say, I'm too good for you guys, and I don't want you anywhere around me. He's not so high and mighty and lofty that he wants nothing to do with us, which he could. He's holy, righteous, and just. We are not. But he loves. And see, because he's holy, righteous, and just, he gives us the opportunity to actually be in relationship with him. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes we think about, okay, but what about this person? What about that person? And all of these things. And what about people who don't hear? God is righteous, holy, and just, and he's provided a way for us to know him, a way for us to access him. What kind of God would he be if he were holy, righteous, and just but weren't loving? Well, he would be cruel, wouldn't he? What kind of God would be if he were holy, righteous, and just but provided us no access to him? See, God loves you. And God loves me. And what he's done is he's provided access to us through Jesus, through God in the flesh. There's a way. In fact, it's the way. The truth. The life. And the question is, do we, do we believe that? And I'm, what I'm not asking you, and this is, this is going to be that wisdom and knowledge piece I talked about a little earlier. When I say, do you believe that? When I ask myself that question, do I believe that? I'm not interested in, and frankly, God is not interested in whether or not you intellectually assent to it. You know what I mean by that? There was a time in our lives, I grew up in the church, and there was a time in my life where I, I was not a follower of Jesus. But strangely, if you would have asked me, do I believe, like, do I believe, let's go back to this statement. John, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Yes. John, do you believe that he was the exact representation of God's nature and being? Yes. John, do you believe that he was present at creation, was born of a virgin, and conceived by the Holy Spirit? Yes. I would have intellectually assented to every one of those things. I would have agreed with them 100%. But the thing that I didn't do was allow that to change me. Does that make sense? Like I, I didn't allow that to change me. I believed all of those things were intellectually true. And there's a text that I, I didn't reference in the notes today. But it's even the demons believe. You should chew on that one at some point this week. Like, if you just intellectually assent to the reality of who Jesus is and it doesn't change your life, who cares? The, the demons believe that. They're not changed by it. So when we ask this question about, do we believe these things are true? It's not about our intellect. 
It's not about wisdom and knowledge. Because there's a way to have wisdom and knowledge and not be transformed by it. When we say, do we believe it? Do we mean, we mean, are we being transformed by it? And what's really great about this text, if we just continue to read on in John 3, God sent his son, this is verse 17, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Again, this is, this is not intellectual knowledge. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God came, God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. Do you know anybody like that? Have you ever been a person like that? All who do hate all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for, the, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. See, if you, if you believe in this, and not the intellectual belief, but the transformational belief, if you believe in these things that the Bible is telling us about Jesus, that John 3.16 is telling us about Jesus, then there's no judgment for you. No judgment for you. This is one of those things that, as a Christian, because I know what, because you tell me, I know what many of you walk around with in terms of guilt and shame from sins that are long forgiven. And if you, if you could see that what Jesus has for you is no judgment, that would transform you. You would be completely changed in your life. But if you don't believe it, this is Jesus, if you don't believe it, he says you've already been judged. So judgment isn't only some future thing that takes place, but what's going to happen is you're going to walk around as a condemned person. You're going to walk around as a person who's carrying guilt and shame. You're going to walk around as a person who is lost. Because you have rejected this and you, you're just going to carry that weight. You're going to be burdened by that. One of the things last week, I loved Jaime's communion meditation last week. He said, it's not your sin that separates you from God, but your rejection of the Savior. And when he, when he first said that, he, he sent me his communion meditation in advance. That's one of the things that kind of came out of that conversation about communion, is we want to see what people are going to talk about in advance. And he sent me that in advance, and I read that. It's not your sin that separates you from God, but your rejection of the Savior. And at first I was like... I'm not sure if I believe that. And then I thought about it and I read the Bible and it is our rejection of Jesus that separates us from God. See, if we have access to God now by accepting who the reality of Jesus is now, we have access to him now. We are not waiting for some future reality of heaven to experience the life that God has for us. 
And my hope for you, one of my hopes for you, I have lots of hopes for you in this message. One of my hopes for you is that you will start living the life that God has for you today. And not wait. Not put it off. Not orient your brain only around a future new life. But you can have it today. Have you ever been around one of those, I'll just call them Christians. Have you ever been around one of those Christians that seems like they're always happy? And I don't mean like the, like the weird ones that always seem like they're happy. You know, who are kind of maybe on the other side of reality. But I mean, just like the, just like the people who, when they're experiencing situations and circumstances and hardships and realities, they're like, man, this is really, really hard, but I'm just trusting in Jesus to get me through. Like, that's not weird. That's actually a Christian thought. Have you ever been around those people and be like, that's really weird, but oh, I would love to be able to think about that. I think that person is so mature that they can look at things like that. I wish I could do that. Here's the reality for those people. They're living in the new life today. They're living in the new life today. How does somebody do that? How do they get to that point? How can they, how can they do these things? Well, they've, I love you. They've read the Bible. They've acted in faith. And then they've just lived it. And they'll still endure the same hardships and circumstances and situations as realities as every other person in the world, but it doesn't shake them to their core. Those are the kind of people that I, like, those are the people that I want to be around. That I can be encouraged by. Because every single one of us is, we're dealing with some stuff, right? We're dealing with some things. Again, my parents divorced when I was 16 years old. That was 36 years ago. And there's not a week that goes by that, that I'm not feeling an effect or an impact of that. And that, that could, and some of you know this, for some of you it's not a day that goes by that, that something that happened 36 years ago doesn't, doesn't just crush your soul. What I want to do, what I want to tell you, what the Bible wants to tell us is that there's a way to live today and not wait and live a joy-filled life and live a hope-filled life and not like, bring on the pain, I love it. But yeah, this is really hard and I remember who I am in Christ and I'm living the new life today. And I have an opportunity to demonstrate to other people what the new life looks like. And I'm going to take that responsibility pretty seriously. Because there are some people who are dealing with some hard things. And what they need is someone to give them hope. And when we live in this hope-filled way, we are giving other people hope. That's why you feel good when you're around them. Man, I don't know if I could do that. That's hope. Man, I wish I could do that. That's hope. This is what Jesus is offering us. Jesus ascends, and God did something amazing. We're actually going to talk about this on Pentecost Sunday at the end of May. He gave us a gift. He gave us, God gave us the Holy Spirit. And this is, again, this will be on the screen. This is what Westway Christian Church believes about the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. 
and the Spirit of Christ and is an active and operative part of the triune God. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing or a force, and as such is personal and has attributes. While the Holy Spirit has influence on all people, the Holy Spirit only dwells within Christians. The Holy Spirit intercedes for Christians perfectly and is the conduit through which Christ is present in the lives of Christians. So if you open your Bible to Romans chapter 8, it's on page 705 in those Bibles up front. Romans 8 verses 9 through 17. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. What I really want you to notice here is that interchange. He says Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ. You see that in the text? They're the same. They're God. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. See, this is the life that we have now. You're going to die, but you have life. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Not is going to live in you, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your what? Your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. God is not waiting to give you something if you are a Christian. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own. When did you receive God's spirit? When he adopted you as his own. I'm going to say it again. You are not waiting to receive something from God if you are a Christian. You have what you need. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. What would that be like for you? What would that be like for you to live and believe and be transformed by the reality that you are God's child today? And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Read that text and I just asked the question, what does this tell me about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the literal presence of God, the Father, and Jesus, inhabiting the body of the believer, giving them new life and demonstrating that they belong to God. That's who the Holy Spirit is. When we read that that text in the NLT, it uses that word controlled. And other translations talk about being in the Spirit or in the flesh. And that's In a lot of ways, that's actually a better translation. When we are in the spirit, when we are in the flesh. And what Paul is talking about here is, is, see, we have a choice. 
When we, when we are, when we are in the flesh, we have a, a choice. If we're a Christian, we have a choice between do I want to be obedient to God or do I want to do what my body wants me to do. We have a choice. One of the things I love about the Bible reading plans that we do each week is I get all kinds of ideas for last week's sermon. But one of the things that this last week's Bible reading plan talked about, it talked about putting on clothes. And I thought that was such a, such a fascinating analogy. And here's, here's what I wrote. Christians are not controlled by their sinful nature. We decide what we put on every day. Did you know that? When you wake up in the morning, I don't know what your, what your drawers look like or what your closet looks like. But we get to decide what we put on every day, don't we? We get to decide what we are going to wear. And I think in a very similar way, each and every one of us, every single day, those of us who are Christians, we have, we have the opportunity to decide what we're going to put on. When that situation and circumstance and hardship and reality comes our way, we have a decision. We get to decide what we're going to put on. How am I going to respond to this? How am I going to give in to this? What am I going to do? Am I going to be angry? Am I going to be bitter? Am I going to be judgmental? Am I going to put on something else? See, we have the opportunity to put things on. And Christians are controlled, are in the Spirit because the Spirit lives within us. And this is, this is what we need to know. It's not just an influence. See, the Holy Spirit can influence everyone. You don't have to be a Christian to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you believe that or not, but that's a common grace. It's kind of like the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Like if you're a rancher around here, you have, you have non-Christian neighbors and you've probably noticed, I mean, depending on where you are in relation to the bluff, of course, you've probably noticed that the same rain falls on your sinner rancher friends as it does on, you, on your own ranch. See, that's a common grace. God influences people through the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we call that conscience. We do something, we don't have to be a Christian to feel bad about what we've done. See, that's just, that's just influence. But this crazy thing about this, this influence is it's not the same as being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not the same thing as having the Holy Spirit live inside of you. Because what happens is if you're simply being influenced by the Holy Spirit, you are going to hit a ceiling of how much you can actually transform your life. And what I'm not saying is, like, you can't give up alcohol if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. Because there are lots of people, there are lots of former alcoholics who have given up alcohol and don't have the Holy Spirit inside of them. There are lots of things that you can do to be a great moral person without having the Holy Spirit live inside of you. But that's not transformation. That's not going to save you. And one of the things, like as much as I've talked about all the things I want for you, one of the concerns that I have is sometimes, like I don't know where people really are in their relationship with God. 
Because we all, we all put on a pretty good front when we come in here on a Sunday morning. Sometimes I wonder if we're actually simply being influenced by the Holy Spirit rather than being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Right? Oh, I feel bad for my sin. I need to change that thing. But I'm not really going to do anything about it. So that's just simple influence. What the Holy Spirit does for us is lives inside of us and still gives us the choice. What, what clothes do I want to put on? What decision do I want to make? How do I want to live today? So the question for us as we, as we think about the Holy Spirit in particular, am I simply being influenced by him or, or am I being indwelt? Is the Spirit living inside of me? Those are two very different things. Well, what's the transformation like? Go beyond the surface of what I used to do, I no longer do. Again, like lots of people do that. What's, what's the root? What is God ultimately doing within my soul? And maybe you're wondering, this whole indwelling of the Holy Spirit thing sounds pretty good. How do I get that? I would love for you to talk to me about that. We're going to talk about it in two weeks. But you, I don't want you to wait. You don't have to wait. You can make a decision today to be a follower of Christ. And we can talk about that. We're going to talk about it more in two weeks. But I don't want you to miss what Paul is writing here. Those that do, this is the parentheses in verse 9 in the NLT. And remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. I love you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you're not a Christian. You're not. You can be influenced by it. You can be led by it. But the Holy Spirit is the marker of the believer. It's a, it's a deposit. And when we have that spirit inside of us, we live a new life. That's how you know. Not I used to do this and now I don't do that. But you live a new life. You put on new things because the Spirit has given you the power to put on new things. You have the Spirit-filled life. You're living your life for Jesus. You're in love for God. You see the things that we read in the Bible or that you read in the Bible, and you're like, oh, that's the life I want. And God is stirring that up inside of me, and I want to, like, I want that. I want to be alive. God is telling me that I can have that. And this is available for all of us because God is loving and he's holy and he's righteous and he's just. And the pathway to access to him is through Jesus. I want you to take out your communion element this morning. This is John 3.16 again. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So this bread represents his body that's been broken for us. Like how we read that, how did he do that? He died on the cross for us. 
He gave his body for us. They can eat. And the cup represents his blood that's been poured out for us. We read this. How did he do this? How did he make us right with him? He gave us his blood. Let's drink. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would, we would not settle for wisdom and knowledge of who you are. We would not be, be simply satisfied with a, with a nice little graphic that tells us how to, how to think about the Trinity. Pray that we would not find satisfaction in 20 sentences that, that talk about who you are. That we would not settle for those things. That we would not settle for knowledge about you, but that we would pursue relationship with you. Knowing who you are, knowing your heart for us, knowing your desire for us, as demonstrated through those three parts of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Help us to be transformed by that knowledge. Help us to be willing to enter into a relationship with you, who you are. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.